right, what are we going to talk about today? Huh? Anybody? Any requests? What do you like? What do you like? A little stand-up comedy? Should we talk about education? Should we talk about dogs? Should we talk about some heavy issues? Should we talk about some dumb topics? Yeah, same old, same old. You'll have the usual. Sounds good. If you made it this far through 30 episodes, you know what you're getting into. Occasionally, maybe I surprise you with a topic here and there, but come on, you know what you're getting into by now. Welcome. Episode 31. Here we go. All right. I'm starting with a story, I think. I don't know where this is going, though. Tangents. We're going to get into some tangents today, believe it or not. I have a cousin. You don't know her. Do you? I hung out with her last night for the first time probably in my life. Now, I've met her. Don't get me wrong. This is my first cousin, my dad's brother's daughter, about five or six years younger than me. So I remember meeting her a couple of times when we were little kids, so I don't really have memories of all that. Then I saw her once in the mid-90s. I remember eating Kentucky Fried Chicken with her, KFC, maybe the last time I had KFC, which means I need to get some fried chicken back in my life. I know it's not good for you, but come on. Have you seen those KFC commercials? With the puffy mashed potatoes and the mac and cheese looking oh so good. KFC fried chicken in the commercials looks excellent. Maybe I'll just be satisfied by that because I know if I went through that drive through today, I would be highly unsatisfied during and after. The and after. That's the part of the fast food experience where I just can't do. Can't do it. If I knew after Taco Bell I would feel fine, I would eat Taco Bell quite a bit. It's so damn good. The double-decker supreme, you know what I mean. You're using the refried beans as an adhesive to keep my hard shell and my soft tortilla together. That's brilliant. Whoever brought that to the table for the first time during the Taco Bell meetings, you know, the old creative meetings at Taco Bell headquarters that I wish I was invited to, whoever said, you know, we're misusing these refried beans, guys. We need to make them as the glue. Keep the shells together. And at first, they were like, no. God damn it, no. They probably yelled at the guy. And then they slept on it. You know, the guys in charge at the Taco Bell headquarters, they slept on it. And then they said, you know something, Donnie's right. We're going with it. And the next day at the meeting, Donnie stood up, and they all gave him a standing ovation. And he had a PowerPoint presentation ready about how it would be. And he said, we're going to call it the double-decker. And a few people fainted. A few people gasped. <gasps> the double-decker? But what if we had sour cream and tomatoes? And Donnie said, it's the double-decker supreme. And they went, fucking brilliant, Donnie. Fucking brilliant, Donnie. But yeah, I'm not about to eat fast food for the aftermath. The during is pretty good. But with KFC, I don't think the during would be any good. So I saw my cousin Emily once in the mid-90s and we had KFC. I remember that. And then I didn't see her once until my wedding two years ago. So basically, this is somebody that I've heard about, I like, always thought she was nice, but never really got to know her. Well, let's fast forward a little bit. What I did know is that she lived in Japan, loved the Japanese culture, learned Japanese... And stayed there for a long time, and then fell in love with the wine industry, moved to New Zealand, learned about it, worked in the vineyards, and now, as we fast forward through this story, she's in Napa. So about 45 minutes north of me right now. 
So this was the time as adults to reconnect. And last night she came over. I'm making shrimp and steak tacos. I put out the cheese board with charcuterie and some green olives, if you must know. And she brought the wine. She's an intern at Cake Bread Cellars. So for all of you wine enthusiasts out there, that's a pretty good wine. That's a pretty fancy vineyard. Cake Bread, which is actually the last name of the head vintner. Or should I just say the owner of the winery? So she's learning all about that world. From the harvesting, to the business side, to the marketing side, to the bottling side, to the shipment side, to the tasting side. It's fascinating. There's three types of people. Those who don't care about wine. They're not interested. They don't want to drink it. They don't care. Then there's the novice. You know, people that go, yeah, I like the occasional glass. I'm into it. Learning about the varietals sometimes. It's fun to go wine tasting sometimes. And then there are the wine maniacs. And these are the people that can tell you, oh, I'm getting plum. It's fruit forward. I got the tannins, a little peppery. Okay, it's got legs. And they'll tell you all of the tastes. These are the people who develop expert palates and they're members of wine clubs and they know about all the regions around the world and the grapes around the world from Spain to Australia to France to Italy all the way to Napa Valley. These people I like. They're not necessarily pretentious. It just means, hey, they got a hobby. They like wine. They like for their adult beverage to have some culture behind it, to have some substance. There's an element of classiness to it as well. So Emily came over last night, educated us a little bit, but of course the conversation got offline into just catching up. However, she did mention something that triggered this topic. Nobody tiptoes slower to a topic than me. And she talked about how when people think about the culture of wine, it is romanticized. You know, if you ever thought about, I'd like to have my own vineyard one day, planting the seeds, tilling the land creating a really cool graphic for my bottle and a really wonderful name. And people would come from all around to go taste the wines in my wine tasting room and discuss the history of the grapes and the region. It is so romanticized, this world, you know, under the sun. But she did mention some wines are able to replicate the taste of the great wines in labs. That's right, in labs. Right now, how capitalistic is this? There are some companies that can create synthetic wine without grapes. It's able to mimic the fine wines. So it's the same taste to me, right? I could sit there sipping on a red wine, sipping on a Cabernet and saying, ooh, I taste plums and cherries and hints of oak. But all the while, I'm just tasting a synthetic fabricated wine from a lab. This happens now. Why? Because you don't have to worry about seasons or farming. You could just do it in the confines of a scientific lab. It's pretty amazing. There's a company called Ava Winery, and they said we could turn water into wine in 15 minutes. That reverses everything we've ever learned about wine, right? Wine is supposed to take years to reach that taste that the distributor is aiming for. Oh, well, for the first year we're growing and then we're plucking and then we're harvesting and then we're shaving it down and then we're bottling it and aging it and all these things that I don't know about. But really, that's why when you see, ooh, it's a 2006 Pinot Noir from Yuntville, you go, oh, okay, let it. Let it age, let it breathe. But how American is this? 
These new age wineries that just say, yeah, we're going to bypass all that bullshit and just make a synthetic blend. We got the tannins, the glycerin, the sugar, and then the ethanol and flavor compounds. Flavor compounds. They can mimic great champagnes. They can mimic all the great wines. Does that take the fun out of it? Sure. That totally takes the fun out of it. There's no story. There's no, I can taste the earth. And I'm not saying the whole wine industry is going in that direction, but it's still interesting. We're impatient. We like to manufacture quickly in this country, make a buck. And when I say make a buck, we're talking about a multi-billion dollar industry. Of course, you knew that. After Prohibition, Napa, the region, they had to rebuild. They were pretty much defunct, dormant, extinct. You go back to Prohibition, unless it was bootlegged in your bathtub, there were no wineries, no tastings. And then you fast forward all of a sudden, there's about 500 wineries in that region now. It's world-renowned. It's crazy to live so close. It's not like I go a lot. In my entire life, I've probably been four times. But just being so close to something so special, it's like people who live in Anaheim and everyone goes, ooh, you're close to Disneyland. There's probably a few residents of Anaheim that don't give a shit. They just live in Anaheim and they're like, yeah, I suppose that's where Mickey and Donald Duck and Pluto hang out, but I'm not into that. There's probably a lot of people in Anaheim who are just like, I don't like Disneyland. I just live there. Now, me personally, I do like wine, but it's not like I feel like this attraction to go to Napa at all times because then you'll spend a bunch of money. And the truth is you don't have to spend a bunch of money to get a good wine. Apparently, they can make a good bottle of wine in about two seconds, turning it from water with chemicals and replicating the tastes, the deep tastes that make certain bottles so expensive. Nope. There are new science-based labs that are just making the wine synthetically. That's amazing. Also leads me to this thought. How many tastes have we gotten wrong in the world of synthetic tastes? Have you ever had a watermelon-flavored Jolly Rancher? Think about that taste for a moment. You know that light pink Jolly Rancher that says watermelon? Now think about the taste of watermelon. Think about the taste of actual watermelon. They're nothing alike. We've been sold these fabricated fake tastes when it comes to what fruits are and how they translate into the candy world. But really, it's not how watermelon tastes. And it's kind of the same thing with all of the flavors. Just start with Jolly Rancher Apple. Go into Jolly Rancher Cherry. Think Jolly Rancher Lemon. None of them actually taste like the fruit, but you have to compartmentalize your thoughts right now. Okay, picture the taste of biting into an apple. Could be Red Delicious, Granny Smith, whatever you like. Pippin, you name it. Macintosh, okay, you got it? Now think about that taste of an apple, and then think about what the candy world, the scientists who work to create fake tastes in the candy world, Think what they have turned that taste into, and they've made us think, okay, this is also the taste of that cherry, apple, lemon, or pineapple, or watermelon. Gummy bears, same thing. Starburst, mamba, Skittles, none of this shit tastes like actual fruit, but they still use the fruit as the basis for what they're selling us. We go, ooh, I love cherry Starburst the most. You ever had a cherry? Just a straight-up organic cherry? Doesn't taste like Starburst. And is the pink Starburst supposed to be strawberry? Oh, stop right there. If that's the case, 
that the pink starburst is supposed to be strawberry, then there's nothing more different in the world of tastes than the candy version versus the real thing. But I think we do accept tastes that are supposed to be something, and they're not. You could probably make an orange juice synthetically without oranges. I imagine you can make an apple juice without apples. People are working hard to imitate things. What about imitation crab? What is that? You ever go to sushi? You order a California roll? What does the waitress say? You want imitation crab or the real thing? That question is not based on your taste buds. That question is based on your bank account. Because you go, well, your California roll, it's five bucks, but the real thing, that fresh lump snow crab, then it's an $8 roll or a $9 roll. And you got to think in that moment, what am I going to say? Am I going to impress the person I'm with and say, real crab? Or am I going to go, yeah, I actually enjoy imitation. Imitation crab? Who invented it? Tell us what it is, not what it's imitating. We need to know. I still think it is seafood, and believe it or not, I like it. I'm not just saying that because I'm a cheapskate. I actually like the imitation crab California roll. I said it. It's a safe zone on this podcast. We can say what we want. I guess all in all, what I'm saying is there's probably plenty of foods we've eaten that are just imitating other foods, and scientists can replicate the taste of anything, anything and everything. The finest steak at Ruth's Chris Steakhouse porterhouse for 55 bucks a scientist could probably take what a few chemicals the inside stuffing of your mattress some food coloring a little bit of dye a little bit of pixie dust and boom there it is a meatless porterhouse for you and our cost will be less happens all the time you like that i just sometimes give you a bunch of bullshit followed by happens all the time conspiracy theorists they probably end most of their statements with happens all the time when really they're just taking a good old fashioned guess. That phrase is the key to really driving your point home when you're making a baseless point. Oh, imitation foods. Are you kidding me? The last time you ate chicken, it probably was not chicken. It was probably soybean based, doctored toothpaste topped with Monsanto rice and some cornstarch happens all the time. Really? All right, maybe this becomes a discussion about processed foods and nutrition, or maybe not. Maybe a lot of us have already accepted that, yeah, there's a bunch of chemicals in the stuff we eat, trying to pretend it's something else. Huh? All right, I had one goal this weekend, stay in my sweats. Don't care where I'm going, stay in my sweats. You're having visitors? Stay in your sweats. Going to the grocery store? Hey, stay in your sweats. Dog walks? Of course, stay in your sweats. Dropping off your rent check? Stay in your sweats. That's a reminder to everybody renting. The month has turned. We have entered September. Your rent is due. One great activity for staying in my sweats? Watching a lot of college football. It's fun. College football is a turnoff to a lot of people. A lot of people who go, these kids should be getting paid. The timeless, tired, age-old debate. Should they be getting paid, these college superstar athletes? I got your answer. It's well thought out. Uh, no, they shouldn't be. Otherwise, they are professional athletes. And the colleges are not colleges, but they're professional teams. And if the colleges become professional teams, then athletes will go to the highest bidder. That's not what we want universities to become. 
So I have the solution. I got the plan. Most people who say pay the college athletes, they're really talking about two sports, football and basketball, not even talking about baseball. They're not talking about swimming, golf, or tennis. No, they're just talking about pay the football players who are making a lot of money for their universities through ticket sales and jersey sales and recognition or the March Madness superstars on the court, the basketball players who are generating tons and tons of revenue for their schools, right? Nobody's saying pay the athletes, including the backup punter for Tulsa University. Pay the athletes, including the sixth best golfer for Florida Atlantic University. Now, the debate is only about watching Ohio State football on TV and players like that from Alabama, Michigan, USC. That's where this comes from. People know that these student-athletes are probably only on campus for one reason, to play sports. So the idea of, yeah, but they're getting free tuition, a full-ride scholarship, room and board, it's empty because these athletes know why they're there. On most campuses, their schedule is filled with football requirements, not even expected to go into the classroom, take tests, and study. I mean, they can, but their schedule does not allow much time for that. The top-tier athletes, the blue-chip athletes, the five-stars, when they arrive on campus, even if they were like, I want to be a marine biologist, I want to study astrophysics, coach would be like, yeah, probably not. We kind of need you here to run that football or shoot that basketball. So for those players, the few who are truly generating a lot of money through ticket sales and revenue, through jersey sales... Let them make that money through endorsements. There's the solution. Allow Nike to start paying them. Because then it'll only be the players who are truly at the top of the college athletics world. And if it's not university money, yeah, let them get paid. Of course. That's what needs to change. If their images are being used in video games, let them get paid. Of course. So there's your resolution. If you can make that money, make it. But we all know. The long snapper for Oregon State probably does not deserve to get paid. Why would we call him a professional athlete? It's for those players who are on the fast track to the pros that have to make their stop at college. You hope they don't get injured. And really, they're just treating college like a stepping stone. I don't even think there should be expectations for them to be inside of a classroom. So the idea of saying, yeah, but they get free tuition, well, it's obsolete. The greatest athletes are there for one reason. Play your sport, and then we'll give you a sociology degree. Even Baker Mayfield said that when he was at Oklahoma. Hey, what was your favorite subject? Uh, football, yeah. How'd you do academically? Well, I played football. Oh, okay, we get it. Wink, wink. Yeah, you can't pay them, because then the universities need to just become corporations that will attract the athletes to the highest bidder. And across the board, you will have so many colleges that can't even fund their sports anymore because they've lost all the players to the highest bidders. The SEC, the Pac-12, the Big Ten. Oh, but that being said, it's been great. College football is back. It's been fun. I mean, the Aztecs' loss to Stanford was not fun, but everything else, fun. Good to have it back. The athleticism is so insane also. I don't know what's a highlight anymore. I was just watching the Ole Miss-Texas Tech game for five minutes, and I saw a receiver make a one-handed catch that 20 years ago would have been the play of the year, would have been the number one ESPY, and it was just like, yeah, run of the mill. Yeah, that happens. 
an Odell Beckham-style one-handed catch happens in every game. That's one thing that is constantly increasing is the athleticism you see in college sports. All of these guys pass the eyeball test. Just the way they look physically, it's unreal. The generational debate when it comes to sports, it's tough because a lot of people want to glorify players from back in the day, which is fine. But if you were to just watch a football game, a college football game from like 1988 versus what you see today in terms of strength and speed and agility, these athletes are so much better. What's the reason? I don't know. Maybe the training, maybe the supplements, maybe the time they put into their craft. But holy shit, these athletes are at a different level. There's no such thing as a highlight anymore. Every three minutes, there's a new incredible highlight. There can't be a sports center top 10. It has to be a top 1,000 when you watch all of the many games in the nation. There's just so much incredible talent. All right, by now you're probably asking yourself, hey, Josh, is your dog walking pretty well? You know, he's like 12 and a half years old. Is he walking pretty well? And the answer is no, no. Sorry to tell you that, but no. Some days he walks well. Other days he doesn't walk that well. The days where he doesn't walk well, he pretty much collapses. Got to carry him. It's going to hurt my back. It's going to build my tries and my buys. So that's kind of a positive byproduct of a dog who can't walk so well. Occasionally, you'll just be far from the house and you got to carry that dog. Up hills, upstairs. It's a weird way to get your workout, but it counts. Oh yeah, it counts as a calorie burner. But the last time I took him into the vet to pay all that money, just to see a vet, just to say hi to your vet is like 50 bucks. That's a big time industry. That's like the wine industry. Nope, no it's not. Can't even make that comparison. I tried. But 50 bucks, and I asked my vet, what's wrong? And of course, the first thing he says is, well, your dog is very old. He's been diagnosed as old. And I go, doc, don't blindside me with that. Are you sitting down for this, Josh? Your dog is what we in the medical industry call an old man. I go, yeah, I get it. And then he told me it's probably neurological because they took all these x-rays of his legs and his hips and they're like, yeah, nothing's broken. Nothing's torn. Even though he limps, no arthritis. So it's neurological. I'll say that once again, neurological, because I had to Google it. So now I have an appointment with a dog neurologist. That'll cost me some cash, but it's worth every penny. And it's sad. Even if it sounds like I'm describing this lighthearted, I'm not. It's a sad time. I know this because sometimes I just cry into his face fur. And I don't cry. Not to say I'm a robot of a human, but I didn't cry at my daughter's birth. I'm not bragging. I just didn't. I was probably too focused on everything going on with the doctors and nurses. God, they're measuring a lot of things. And that first moment when a baby is born, it's a straight up medical procedure of numbers and letters and levels and statistics and heartbeats and blood pressure and a lot of goo and a lot of goo is in the room. So forgive me for not crying in that moment. I was still emotional and I didn't cry at my wedding. I realized I don't cry tears of joy. I was so happy. Some people cry tears of joy. I don't have that ability. Like if my team ever wins a championship, the Warriors have won championships. I have not cried. I've been very excited. I've been happy. But tears of joy, I kind of want that ability. Seems nice. I'm so happy I could cry. People cry when they're happy. I like that quality. I don't have it though. So didn't cry at my wedding. Did not cry when my daughter was born. 
But when my dog limps and he kind of stumbles down the stairs, it is the type of heart-wrenching emotional outburst that just makes me weak in the knees and I hardly see I lose all control. SWV, Sisters with Voices. Hold on, what did they say? I get so weak in my knees, I can hardly see I lose all control. So yeah, I got Sisters with Voices, SWV in my head when my dog is limping. I get, no, okay. But I'll bet you uh, a few of you listening can relate. They go, oh yeah, 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 yeah. Crying in your dog's face for, oh, all the time. It's a good old-fashioned, vulnerable moment to break down that way. I don't know if it feels good, but processing feelings is good. Don't keep it bottled up, people. That's the message of today's podcast. Don't you keep your feelings bottled up. Let your walls come down. You put on that SWVCD later today and let your walls come down. But as of right now, it's a good story because the dog is still alive. Okay? There's the end. Vet bills, neurologist appointments, emotions, noticing that everything is finite, thoughts of mortality. I'm almost 37. I've had this dog since I was like 23 or 24. So I don't even remember life without him. You want me to cry right now, don't you? I would. If I was a great actor and I could just flip that switch, I would cry right now. It's just, I don't. It's because when I want to say the first two words of a sentence, then get too choked up to say the full sentence. He seems like they always. I wish I could do it, but I can't. I cannot fabricate these tears, but they can certainly fabricate that crab, that imitation crab. And they can make synthetic wine in five minutes to taste like the best Pinot Grigio off the hills of Tuscany or Healdsburg. Not sure why I gave you two options right there. All right, let me jump into some stand-up comedy, huh? I have some really intense feelings about stand-up comedy right now. Number one, Louis C.K. came back. I believe he was at the Comedy Cellar last week in New York City, in the village. And the club owner is getting a lot of heat. Sure, Louis gets heat too, but that's obvious. The club owner is getting heat because they say he's not honoring the victim's requests or their feelings. And when I say victims, I mean the women who accused Louis C.K. of sexual harassment, making them feel uncomfortable, putting them in a terrible situation of masturbating in front of them. We all know the story. But the club owner is like, yeah, Louis can perform at my club. He's paid his dues. This is capitalism also. The club owner, he's sitting on a gold mine. Louis C.K. sets. Every time Louis C.K. does a set at the Comedy Cellar, if you're the owner of that comedy club, morals take a backseat to straight cash homie. But I love how this guy's under fire. What, did people want him to ban Louis C.K.? We all knew Louis C.K. was coming back. And who knows how remorseful Louis actually is? Who knows? It'll show up in his act. Everybody's interested, too. Louis knows that. He's smart enough to know. They want me to talk about this. So he came back. His career will be fine, as we know. Like I've said, Americans, a very forgiving bunch. Especially if you're really good at what you do. The amount of celebrities that have had a little hiccup in their career, or a giant, massive hiccup, and still come back, it's a long list. People go see Woody Allen movies all the time. Ray Lewis is an alleged murderer. Hey, we welcome him onto our pregame show. Hey, Ray, what do you think about the defensive line? 
Not to say these things are forgotten, but the big suits in power, if they could generate money off of your skill or talent, they will happily overlook your criminal past or immoral past. So Louis C.K. is back. Some people said too soon. What's the correct number? Too soon. Did he need to wait six more months? We say too soon a lot. Like there's a exact amount of time that needs to pass before reputations can be rebuilt or before we can start talking about a certain topic. Whoa, too soon. Who sets the parameters of too soon? That's an actual question. I don't even have the answer. All right, and then my Netflix takes. Here you go. Comedy's weird in the sense that a stand-up comedian has probably done their jokes hundreds of times. In the mirror, at clubs throughout America, in front of their friends, you know, they've really crafted their jokes pretty well. So by the time they come on stage, to have it still look like it's organic and natural, and to have it at least appear fresh, that they're still full of enthusiasm with their act, that is the skill. I mean, that's truly the skill to know that they've done two shows a night and they brought it for both shows. They understand the audience paid good money. They got to bring that effort for both shows. But there's something I don't like my comedian doing, and that is laughing at his or her jokes. Burt Kreischer's special on Netflix right now, where he takes his shirt off, is so unwatchable because he's doing this act like he's saying these things for the first time, like it's all off the cuff. Like he's fooling the audience and he's laughing so hard at everything he says. God, he thinks he's funny. So even if the content is good, even if the jokes are solid, watching him react to his own material as if it's new and he's just, you know, extemporaneously up there making these jokes like it's improv. It's such bogus bullshit. He's unwatchable. There you go. Let's bury Bert, even though he's a pretty funny guy. And then the other one. My cousin Emily, just to bring her back into this podcast, she recommended Eliza Schlesinger. And she's real famous. She's one of the big names right now. She has a few specials on Netflix. When you think about the biggest female names in comedy right now, you think of Amy Schumer, you think of Sarah Silverman. But Eliza Schlesinger, she's in that discussion. If you don't know the name, you could easily Google her and see her. Her entire act is so meticulously structured and polished that it leaves no room for the Burt Kreischer approach of let the audience think that this is all off the cuff. So Burt's in the opposite direction, where it's like, don't take us for idiots. We know this is pre-written and rehearsed and worked on and worked on and worked on to hit the perfect words at the perfect time and get to that punchline with the right path of words. Eliza... Didn't do it for me. Her content was really good, but it's almost like she's reciting her act. That's the best way I could put it. It's like she's just reciting her act that she has rehearsed. I will step here on stage. I will kick there. I will use this voice. Then I will flip my hair and I'll walk to this part of the stage. It's very theatrical in the sense that I don't think stand-up comedy needs to be theatrical or even should be theatrical. It sounds like I'm so critical, but there's a lot of comics who just do it well. They get out there, they connect with the crowd properly, to properly connect with the crowd. Eliza, she doesn't connect with the crowd. She even has her crowd work written. You can tell when she addresses the crowd and acts like it's just off the cuff. It ain't. Very one-woman show. It's amazing how much I like stand-up comedy, but hate one-man shows or one-woman shows. Doesn't work. For me, that is. The old one-man show. It's like trying to be comedy... It's in the same discussion as comedy, but it's not. 
Fred Armisen does a great job making fun of those one-man shows. If you can ever check out his monologue when he hosted Saturday Night Live, he just does that character the whole time. The one-man show. Not for me. So that's Eliza. Give her a C+, because she's still very smart, and I know she's talented. But no connection with the audience, just reciting. And then Burt Kreischer, he's playing this character that thinks he's so funny. Plus, I don't believe half the shit he says. You gotta wonder with comedians, when they tell a story, is it all just made up? Does it stem from a thought that they had in a real situation where in their minds they went, what if I did this? Or what if this happened? That's the comedic mind. The old, what if I did this right now? And of course it didn't happen. But then you go on stage and you go, you know, this morning I, uh, and then you deliver the story as if it did happen. I think that's a majority of bits where these comics are telling stories that didn't really happen. Comics are still, you know, part of the human race that have to follow social norms. But then they get on stage and they have endless stories that make you go, what? That happened? No, shit. It probably didn't. Not like I care. I'm not the truth police. Hey, you make something up. Don't let facts get in the way of a good story. But I think that's how I'm viewing a lot of these comics. They tell a really good story. And I'm like, no, nope, I, don't, I don't really buy that. I mean, it's funny, but nope, that didn't happen. God, I always end these podcasts so cynical. I promise. I'm still an optimist. Staying positive. In my sweats. It is fall. Or actually, I don't know if it's officially fall on the calendar, but it feels like fall because football's back, and that's a good thing. All right. Leave a review on iTunes if you want, if you have some time out of your busy life. Follow me on Twitter if you want. Hey, these are just options for you. You have the right to say no, sir. No, I will not. But I appreciate you tuning in for episode 31. And that episode, folks, is officially in the books. It's history. I'll talk to you soon.